We are in a series right now at Jesus Community, and we're learning to abide with Jesus, bless other people. Today, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you brought a Bible, I want to turn there and your phones. And we know the Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice, also bear one another's burdens. Uh, so we are going to rejoice and give a shout out to Auburn High School, state champs with basketball. That's it. That's it. More Trojans over here than over there, but I think we're all rejoicing with those who rejoice. And then uh, when you think about, you know, carrying each other's burdens, for me, going through this injury, I see people with crutches more now than I used to. And even people like on wheelchairs, I'm noticing them more. And last Sunday, I was able to pray with somebody who their leg is now amputated and just thinking about what they go through and how much work it takes to come to church when you're in a wheelchair. Let's be a church that sees people and then connects with people. People in wheelchairs, let's love them and they're part of family as well. So those are some of the things I'm learning. Some of you have asked, I did get an MRI this week and it is a full rupture of my Achilles tendon and I meet with the surgeon Tuesday. Prayers appreciated for wisdom, which route to go, and if surgery is the next step. So that's the medical update. Uh, with continuing to carry each other's burdens, prayer for Ukraine, the people there. We are praying Mondays at noon. Last Monday, many of you joined in here in person, also online. It's very easy to do through Zoom. We encourage you to continue to pray throughout the week for that situation. And then Mondays at noon, we pray together intentionally as well. So there's a lot happening in our world from celebrating high school basketball championships to praying really around the world that God would bring peace in some very difficult situations right now. There's about 1.4 million Ukrainians that are on the move, refugees. And I think with all these situations, we pray and then say, God, what do you want me to do? What has my name on it? And I have a friend who's a pastor in the sound. He's originally from Romania and he's praying about the situation. He just flew back to Romania to welcome refugees and take care of Ukrainians that don't have a home and to help them find homes right now. For all of us, we abide and respond. We pray and then move as God leads us individually and together. We want to continue to pray as well. All right, let's go to the Lord. Father God, we thank you for this time together, for everyone that's here and online that we're gathered together. God, we want to be focused on you, a true Jesus community that honors you and trusts you, that bless other people. We're growing. We're learning, God. Forgive us when we mess up and help us to walk in your light, your love, your truth today as we rely on you. And I pray we would see so clearly today what you are in and what you are not in in our lives. The attitudes, the patterns, the words, the opportunities. What are you in and what are you not in? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a big difference between a religious spirit and the Holy Spirit. Repeat after me. There's a big difference between a religious spirit and the Holy Spirit. There's a massive difference, and not everything that is religious is from God. Not everything that is religious is healthy or from heaven. Now, sometimes in our culture, we like to say, it's not better, it's just different. Have you heard that? Trying to be politically correct, we say, it's not better, it's just different. Well, the Bible's very bold, and in so many instances, God says, this is better. This is a better way. You're not better than anyone else 
but there is a better option for you and there's a better way with life and God shows it to us very clearly. We need discernment in the times we're living in between what is religious and what is coming from the Holy Spirit. And one of the best ways to have clarity is to notice contrasts. And today we're going to look at four differences, four contrasts that are laid out in this passage. We're starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 4. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The first difference, it's the difference between self-confidence and divine confidence. And it's a massive difference. You have two choices when it comes to confidence. First, you choose what's the ultimate source of your confidence. And second, you choose how much confidence you have. One option is to put your ultimate confidence in yourself. And if you choose that and have just a little confidence in yourself, you might end up with a lot of despair. Now, if you choose to have your ultimate confidence in yourself and you have a lot of confidence, you might end up with a lot of pride. Despair and pride, it's not where we want to be. I do not recommend. I think it's a trap, a deception, an illusion to put your ultimate confidence in yourself. Well, what's the other option? To put your ultimate confidence in God. And if you have a little bit of confidence in God, you're going to see that you're faithful in some things and you're going to miss some opportunities with some other things. But when you have your confidence in God and it is a full confidence in God, then you're going to experience what Jesus describes as an abundant life. And because your confidence is in God, there's going to be a peace and a joy and a love that overflows from your heart during the day that people see and they see Jesus in you because your confidence is not in yourself, it's in God. And as you unpack that, Paul says, our confidence is not in ourselves, but from God through Christ. What Paul is not saying is to deny your gifts and your abilities. That's not what the Bible says. You are gifted. You have abilities from the Lord. Don't deny those. This passage is not saying have a really low self-esteem, be harsh on yourself. No, that's not what this passage teaches. This passage does not teach just a opportunity. self-confidence. Instead, what Paul is going after, and he exposes and really obliterates. To see so clearly in how unhealthy it is. Jesus describes it in this way, in this parable in Luke chapter 18, comparing two people that are praying. In Luke chapter 18, to some who are confident of their own righteousness, that's that humanistic religion, and they look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, those were the religious leaders, full of morality, they knew the Bible, full of self-righteousness. The other one a tax collector. Tax collectors were seen as the bottom of the food chain in that culture, sadly. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. 
But the distance, he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. At the heart of this humanistic religion is this self-confidence that comes from a false self-righteousness and an illusion of self-sufficiency. And it is so easy for all of us to slip into that. And what's the basis? Well, we get puffed up because we think about a couple things. We think about our knowledge, our ability, our morality, our experiences. And where that will lead you is to compare with other people and then have a big view of yourself, have a false self-righteousness based on, well, I know more, I've done more, I have greater abilities. It's about me instead of God. And that is coming straight from the pit. Well, what's the other option? What's the better way? Because there is one. The better way is to say, God, I don't have what it takes. God, I don't have it all together. Religion is constantly striving with self-effort to show everyone that we have it all together. That is the weight that we can't bury. It is the false game of religion to impose that I can somehow have it all together. Look at me. I have it all together. And I've got proof on social media that I have it all together. But what's the other option? God, I don't have it all together. God, I need you. I'm ready to receive your grace and mercy for my sin. God, I need your presence. I need your power. I need your peace today. I need your provision, your promises. God, I'm coming to you relying on you because I don't have it all together. And you can just feel the stress and the weight that comes off just by saying, I can't do this alone. God did not save you because you're competent. God did not call you because you're competent. God doesn't sit back and say, wow, look at this self-sufficient, competent person. That doesn't happen. But instead, the truth is we come to God and we say, God, I'm not competent unless you step in in your presence and you empower me and you work through me in my weakness. That's how I become competent. And we're ready. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verse 19. This verse is uh, tucked away, but it's a theme throughout the Bible. And you see the relationship, the abiding with the Father. In John 5, 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. If Jesus was constantly listening to the Father, how much do we need to listen to the Father? If in Luke 4, 1, the Bible says Jesus was filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, how much more do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit? Do you see the posture? It's not one of independence and pride. It's one of listening to the Father, full of the Spirit, bearing much fruit. I can't do it alone. I need God. And because my confidence is in God, then I can say, God, I'm ready to do what you want me to do. Go where you want me to go. Say what you want me to say because I'm so confident in you and your word that if you say it, I'm in it. That's the posture. And this whole thing about worthy, you know, am I worthy? Worthy can just be a trap of did I earn it? Did I do enough? Am I worthy? Am I worthy now? Am I worthy? It's not about how worthy I am. It's about how worthy God is. 
And when you see God as someone you can trust, confidence in God, confidence in your word, then God's going to build you up and you're going to enter this place where there's freedom, there's faithfulness, there's abiding in trust, there's transformation. You're going to become an instrument of his hope in this world and it'll all be for God's glory, not for your glory. What a great place to be. Uh, If you want to boil it down this way, uh, it's really hard to be passionate about God if ultimately your confidence is in yourself. It is really hard to be on fire for God if your confidence is ultimately in yourself. It is really hard to bring peace to the places you go with a non-anxious presence if ultimately at the crux of it, your confidence is in your own ability and reliance on yourself. You just can't hold it all together. But when you trust God and you invite him in to take over, now you got peace. Now you got joy. And you know what? You're passionate about the glory of God because you know who's given you the strength. Do you see the difference between those two things? It's not like, oh, that's just a slight difference. No, these are two completely different paths. And there's people in Corinth that are false teachers saying, go the route of confidence in yourself. And if you just get a few, little more knowledge and you just try a little harder, look what you can do. And Paul's saying, that's not going to be the path of spiritual maturity. It's about looking to God and learning to have your confidence in God and abide with him. That's where you're going to bear much fruit. It's really a word, I think, that's so timely for our culture today. And we take that in, spend a little extra time there. Let's continue with the text in verse 7. And in this section, you're going to get some history, you're going to get some theology, and this is a passage you can dive in during the week. There's a lot to unpack. Let's listen to what God says, starting in verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, It came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading, it was fading away, it came with glory... How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who had put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil that remains when the old covenant is read, it's still there. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Here's the next difference. It's the difference between fading glory and increasing glory. Fading glory, this is a reference back to Exodus chapter 34. Moses went up to Mount Sinai. And at that mountain, God revealed and gave him the Ten Commandments. It was on stone. And when he came down from the mountain after spending time with God, there was a radiance on his face. There's a radiance in our soul when we spend time with God. And he came down from that mountain and he brought the Ten Commandments. Was it from God? Yes. Did it have some glory? Yes, it sure did. But here's the part about the Ten Commandments. We're all lawbreakers. We break those Ten Commandments. So it came from God. It had some glory, but it led to a, well, there's a clear result that we're lawbreakers. We can't perfectly keep these Ten Commandments. And with it, there's a sense of condemnation because we rebel against God and break God's laws. 
Really, every day we sin against God. So that was, yes, glory, but at the same time, it was a fading glory. There were Judaizers in Corinth, and these Judaizers, they were locked in to some of the previous laws and rituals. Take circumcision, for example. It had a meaning. It was significant for a season. But they missed the greater meaning. They missed the greater meaning that instead of just a ritual or a custom, they tried to run with that and think, well, that's for Gentiles, that's for all time, and the important part is the external part of the circumcision. But God in that ritual always designed that the major meaning is for the heart, not the external ritual, it's the heart. And they miss that, and they're trying to force people into their legalism in that sense in Corinth. I'm trying to unpack what was happening in Corinth so that we can clearly see there's a better option. Well, what's a better option than legalism? Or what's a better option than a fading glory? It's an increase in glory. And here's three theological words to become just familiar with. It's justification, sanctification, and glorification. In your relationship with Jesus, there's justification, which means a declaration, legal declaration, that you are now righteous. When you put your trust in Jesus, you're born again by his grace, an undeserved gift. You are now righteous in God's eyes. The righteousness of Jesus is given to you. Your sin is given to Jesus. Incredible exchange. You are now justified, secure eternally. Well, do you stop there? No. You keep growing in that sanctification. That's becoming more like Jesus all the time. Our thoughts, our attitudes, God's at work in our lives. We're growing more like Christ. It's exciting. The glory is growing. And ultimately, there's a glorification when we're finally done with death and temptation and sin and we have glorified bodies. We're with the Lord. We see the Lord. You are on a track right now because that glorification is guaranteed from justification, now a process of sanctification to glorification. Would you agree that that's a lot better than just 10 commandments on a stone? Uh, isn't it great to be living during this time? I mean, imagine if you were just waiting and Moses came down and said, here it is, 10 commandments. You'd be like, it's good, it's got some glory, but I think the glory is fading. And it's not complete. Is there something else God has? And we know he does. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. What has more glory, the stone tablets or the sun? The Son of God has so much more glory than the stone tablets. Well, what about in our lives? We can be discerning about God's glory during the week fading or increasing in our lives. We can be discerning. Ephesians 4, chapter 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not impersonal. You have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And you can grieve the Holy Spirit and, um, or you can trust and embrace and walk with the Spirit. Now, Ephesians 4.30, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. What comes right before that? Unwholesome words. The way we talk, the glory in our lives can fade. More of God's presence, more of his glory. When we talk in ways that don't build people up and slander, the glory starts to fade. What about right after that? If you don't forgive people, it says forgive others just like Christ forgive you. When you don't forgive people and you carry resentment in your heart, the glory fades. You can't say, yeah, I'm going to hold on to resentment and still have all the glory of God in my life. No, the Holy Spirit and resentment don't abide together. So you choose which way am I going. And you know what? When you hold on to bitterness and you hold on to rage, you are actually, the glory is fading. And it's important to know during the week, is the glory increasing or is the glory fading? Am I grieving the Spirit? Or am I walking with the Holy Spirit? More of God's presence, 
more of his glory. It's the pattern throughout scripture. Now there's a second difference in this section. It's the difference between preliminary and ultimate. And preliminary, we're talking about an old covenant and a new covenant. An old covenant was preliminary. It served a purpose. It was from God. But then it was all before the birth of Jesus. Now we have a new covenant. Well, what was the old covenant? The old covenant, again, we've got a law and a standard that's perfect, that displays God's righteousness. And then all of us break and fall short of that glory, miss the mark. And then in that culture with the old covenant, they would sacrifice animals Because why? Sin's a big deal. There's a sacrifice needed. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Was it a full covering of sins? No, but it was partial and temporary. It was pointing to Jesus, who's the Lamb of God, who would come and sacrifice. These animals are sacrificed. It's all foreshadowing to Jesus, who would finally pay the full price because he's fully human, sinless, and fully God. It was a foreshadowing that, yes, it had a purpose, but it wasn't ultimate. It was preliminary. And why do we not sacrifice animals at grace? Because we're not in the dispensation of the old covenant. We have a new covenant. If you ever see an animal sacrificed here, no, I just, no is all I can say. No, no, no. We don't have animal sacrifices because one sacrifice paid for sins for all time, Jesus Christ. So in all of this, What I want to highlight is the word of God is true. This is all God's word, 66 books. It's not like, well, kind of Old Testament, definitely New Testament. No, no, no. This is all God's word. This is all reliable. It's all good. It's all true for all times, all nations, all generations. This will last forever. It's the word of God. I'm affirming the word of God. I die for the word of God, okay? Now, there's also seasons as you walk through, because the word of God's over thousands of years, where there's an old covenant, and then there's a new covenant, And there's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This Old Covenant, it's a a fading glory, it's preliminary, it's pointing to a New Covenant. Well, um, some people don't embrace a New Covenant. The word new here means two things. It doesn't just mean a timeline like it's new. We haven't seen it before. That is one of the meanings. But the second meaning with new, it's a greater quality. It's a greater glory. It's not just new that we haven't seen it. God brings a new covenant, and it's through the blood of Jesus and by his grace, and that's a greater, that's a greater opportunity. Now, what happens sometimes is we get stuck in the old, and all of the sacrifices, they boil down to acceptance and access, okay, to God, and there's a veil. When people don't follow Jesus, there's a veil over their eyes. The Bible says the devil wants to blind our eyes. When we see Jesus for who he is, that veil and the blindness is gone and we see the light and we see the Savior. Similarly, in the temple, there was a veil, a curtain, because access and acceptance, you tried to access God in the middle of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and to try to go past that curtain, well, only certain priests could do that. When Jesus was crucified, he tore that veil, not from bottom to top, man's effort or woman's effort, but instead top to bottom, God's work tore the veil. Now the Holy of Holies is open. You have access to God right now. You have access to the throne of God right now. You don't need to go to a priest or to a friend. You go right to God. It's a throne of grace. You have acceptance through Jesus Christ. You have access to God right now. All this is yours. (laughs) 
And how much better is the new covenant than us trying to figure out how many goats do we kill and how does that cover which part of what I did wrong? No, we know we're accepted. We know we have access. And this hope, hope is not a word that says maybe. Hope is secure, guaranteed. We have this hope. And, and you take that in and you say, why wouldn't people move forward? Why would people get stuck in a system of an old covenant and not move forward with what God's doing? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to get stuck in the past or get stuck in how the Spirit moved back then and not be open to how the Spirit's moving now? And I'm sure they said, well, we have a system. We can't have a new covenant. We have a system. We have animal sacrifice. It it comes from the Word right here. Uh, We've always done it this way. We, we've always killed the lambs. I don't know. Jesus could be the lamb of God. We kill animal lambs right here. This is how we like it. This is how we like doing it as well. And you could see all of that. And they could miss what God's doing that's new. Here's at the crux. At the crux of anything you see that's new, is it from God? Is it from God? If it is, then we're all in. If it's not, then we're not moving forward. But how is God moving? God is moving differently now than he was in the year 2000. Some people are still hold on and stuck to certain methods in treating them like they're eternal. But no, it was a certain way God was moving in the year 2000. He's moving differently in 2010. He's moving differently in 2020 than he is right now. And the goal for us is to discern, is it from God and move with the Spirit? There's a generation that got stuck in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb had a different spirit. And they said, no, God's in it to keep going. And they said, we got to move with the cloud during the day. We're watching the fire at night, the fire of God, the presence of God. And the promise of God says, this land is where we need to go. But there's a whole generation that said, no, we feel comfortable in the wilderness. We're used to the wilderness. We know how to survive in the wilderness. We have a little manna. We talk about going back to Egypt. And we just keep doing circles. This is what we've always done in this generation. And they're saying, no, there's more that God has, a spirit that's different. We can do it. We can trust God because our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in God. So we're going to go into the promised land. You see, there's a battle in every generation between what God is doing through the Holy Spirit and where we can get stuck in either sin or dead religion. And you know, Jesus calls out dead religion stronger than anybody else. He comes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he doesn't mince words. He says, you hypocrites, you get it all cleaned up on the outside and I just see dead bones on the inside. And he was strong because of their pride and that spirit of religion and a religious spirit is different than the Holy Spirit. And then Stephen, well, he just did like Jesus, and he told it how it was. And I'm just going to read one verse. This is just before he was killed. He said, you stiff-necked people. Now, that kind of sounds like someone who's about to get killed, doesn't it? I mean, you go up to the religious leaders who are self-sufficient, self-righteous, have no more Bible than anybody else, full of pride, and you go to them and say, you stiff-necked people? Yeah, you're probably going to get killed. But you know, when he died, Jesus was standing up, not sitting next to the right hand of the Father, standing up. I think Stephen got a standing ovation. And he said, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts, there's the circumcision. It's not the outward and the external. Your heart's still uncircumcised. With uncircumcised hearts, he points out, the condition of the heart is what it's all about. You are just like your father's. 
there can be generations of a religious spirit that need to be broken. You just keep doing the same religious wilderness your fathers have been doing. And it's superstition. It's on the outside. It doesn't fool anyone. It's not real. It's not authentic. It's not deep. It's not from the heart. And that's what you're all about. He's going to get killed for it, isn't he? You can see it coming. And he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's at the crux. You just resist the Holy Spirit. You don't let the Holy Spirit take over. You don't rely on the Spirit. You don't listen to the Spirit. You don't value the Spirit. You're just trying to do this religion thing on your own strength, and it's not working. Everyone knows it's not working. You can't fake people. You can't hold it all together yourself. It's time for you to get down your knees, repent, and let the Holy Spirit come and take over and just quit the religious act. Because you can't fool God. He knows the story and what nobody else sees, God sees. And at some point, you got to be like, I'm not going to play that game, that private game where God knows my heart, God knows what's in private, and I got to fake it all the time. I'm done with that. I'm done faking people out at church, faking people out at Bible study, faking people out on one-on-ones. I'm putting up the fake, but God knows the whole deal. And I'm tired of the inside story being different than the outside story. So come, Holy Spirit. And that's where revival comes. And you say, well, it's easy in the world to see the sin. The sin's obvious in the world. And it's a battle. The world's getting bolder about its sin, taking pride in its sin, glory in the sin. But in the church, it gets trickier. It gets trickier. Because a religious spirit, well, part of it quotes Bible. And part of it says it knows the right thing to do. And part of it shows up to church. And it's like... But you know it's like something's off, but it's religious. And how do you sort through that? And Paul is saying, look, there's the payment for sin. The penalty of sin is paid for through Jesus. And the power to break sin is through the Holy Spirit. Secret sins, patterns of sins, you don't have to go home with those today. You say yes to the Holy Spirit. There's power to break that. And ultimately, the presence of sin is going to be gone. And there's a victory in the Lord that's available to anyone who will come humble and come hungry and receive Jesus. And that's a different vision than the false teachers at Corinth. And it leads to these last two verses. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, verse 17. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's great freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And the last difference is the difference between the law and the Spirit. The law serves a purpose. Again, God's Word is solid. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. Uh, But I'll tell you, you can uh, be in God's Word and still have a form of religion, but no fire. You can be in God's word and have all the principles, but not have the power. And the illusion is if I just get a couple more principles, a couple more gems, a couple more nuggets, a couple more principles, I'm just five principles away from really being something spiritually. And I want to tell you what you probably need is a lot more power. Most American Christians that have been in church for 10, 20 years, they've got more principles and they know what to do with But it's not the form that we need. It's not always the principles, although we want to keep learning. But what's missing is the fire of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And you can't replace that. The Pharisees had more Bible knowledge than anyone. The Pharisees had more apparent morality than anyone. 
I think Bible knowledge is phenomenal. I couldn't encourage you strong enough to be in the Word every day. I think it's one of the absolute best habits to cultivate. And in terms of morality, absolutely. Shine the light and integrity of Jesus. Shine that. But if your whole picture spiritually is that it's Bible knowledge and it's try harder morality, where's that going to lead you? Do you see how much is missing there? The, the, so many people in America think, more than half America thinks you earn your way to heaven through your works. The Bible says it's not by works, it's by grace. And then you talk about to Christians in America and they think, oh, it's, I just got to get a couple more principles and I just got to try harder because religion's about being my best self and trying the hardest and just give me a couple new principles so I can try harder with those. And I'm telling you, that's not the path of the Bible. There's a better way. Yes, Bible knowledge. Yes, morality. But there's a life-giving spirit working inside of you that wants to transform you and do far beyond what you can do on your own strength. The need that we have is for the Spirit of God. The number one need we have in churches across the sound is for God's Spirit. God's Spirit. I'll say it this way. The Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. The Bible's a gift. The Bible's eternal. But the Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. The Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And could it be that across churches in America, we've been grieving the Holy Spirit? Could it be that we've been more religious? Could it be that we've got a lot of outside fronts? But the power of God through the presence of the Holy Spirit needs to come in such a fresh way. And it happens when we say yes in our hearts. Because dead religion, it it resists and restricts reformation. A religious spirit resists the Holy Spirit. And what I see in the Bible is those who are hungry and will humble themselves and say, I can't hold it all together. God, show me your way. Come with your power. God's faithful to move and heal the land and heal homes and heal our hearts. Got to the end of this message, and the image I had was four rats. And I realized there's people here who like rats. Rats aren't a sin. There's people who have rats as a pet. But I just found this picture of four rats because I, I think clarity is important here. When people hear religion and they hear things, it's like, what did he really say? So I'm going to clarify these four rats. You don't want them in your home. You don't want them doing their thing. You, you just, they leave a mess that's trouble. First, we've got to step out of a situation of an illusion of self-sufficiency where our ultimate confidence is in ourselves, not God. The second rat, we need to let go of inferior what's fading in terms of glory and step into what's ever increasing in terms of glory. We also, as a third rat, need to get rid of historical idolatry that's tied into preferences and traditions that doesn't move with how the Holy Spirit is moving. And we want to value the movement of the Holy Spirit. And if God's in it, then we're going to move forward in the promised land, not stay in a wilderness. And then lastly, we want to say yes to being Jesus-centered, not law-centered. When you're law-centered, yes, the law serves a purpose, and God's commandments are true and righteous. But if you're law-centered, you're always trying to earn. You're always trying to get acceptance from God, and you're hard on yourself. It's often a double life. And then you take that law, and you impose it on everyone else in legalism, and you look down upon people, and you carry resentment because you're law-centered, not Jesus-centered. And we've got to move to Jesus primary. The law supports the work of God. But 
it's not law primary and, oh yeah, by the way, there's some Jesus. No, Jesus is primary. And with all these things, you know, the Holy Spirit is moving. What we need is a move of the Holy Spirit today. A move of the Holy Spirit. Not a religious spirit, but a move of the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for this passage and how you speak to the Corinthians. Paul pouring out his heart in a vulnerable way. God, the Corinthians were a group of people that were trying to decide because they couldn't have both. And God, as we hear your word today, we're often a people that's trying to do both. And I pray that you would set us free from the traps of all kinds of traps that come along with dead religion. And Jesus, I pray we'd turn from sin to you. We'd be renewed today through the Holy Spirit. You said, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? What else could we do besides turn from sin and ask for the Holy Spirit? In Grace Community Church, may the Holy Spirit not be quenched or grieved. No resistance to the Holy Spirit. God, in our homes, in our hearts where no one's looking, we don't want to fade in glory. We don't want the trap of self-sufficiency. We thank you for acceptance, God. We thank you for access to you. We thank you that you desire to fill us with your presence. God, we pray for renewal and a revival that we haven't seen before, that we haven't experienced before, an ever-increasing glory that comes from the Spirit, not from the law. We give you glory and praise for what you're going to do, God, as we surrender, as we grow and learn together in a Jesus community how to abide, how to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Guide each person here in our relationship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to listen to you, trust you, and have our confidence in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.